Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I am, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Jeremy Triglone-Reed. He completed his PhD in astronomy at the University of Kiel, Staffordshire, UK, and then went on to a two-year postdoctoral research fellowship at NASA Ames Research Center in California. In 2018, Dr. Treglone-Reed relocated to northern Chile, and his primary research is in exoplanets, specializing in exoplanets which orbit active host stars. To better understand how stellar activity can impact our ability to detect and characterize exoplanet systems. Since the start of 2020 and after the launch of DarkSat, SpaceX's first attempt to dim their satellites, Dr. Treglone-Reed has been leading an international network of telescopes in performing brightness measurements of satellite constellations such as Starlink, OneWeb, and Amazon Kuiper. This survey is collecting data to allow astronomers to develop mitigation software and to ascertain the impact of satellite constellations to the quality of the night sky and astronomy. His social media, he's on, it looks like he's on um, Twitter at Treglone underscore read and Blue Sky. That's a longer one, but they'll be on the Restoring Darkness website. So if you want to check out his social media, go to restoringdarkness.com, pick his, his podcast and all the information will be there, including from where he works. Um, before we go there, though, we got to tell you about our good friends at Evluma. That is E-V-L-U-M-A.com. They have a dark sky section on their website, so you can click dark skies on Evluma.com, and you'll see their fixtures that are compliant and reduce light pollution, preserving night and restoring darkness. And before we start, I just want to quickly tell you about the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, a new 501c3 charity incorporated in the United States. It was created by the lighting industry. Wow, isn't that great? So a bunch, 70 different lighting distributors and about 25 different manufacturers decided that it's time for an organization that is um, dedicated to the preservation of night and the restoration of darkness to be created by the lighting industry. Yes, isn't that great? So we, we're doing all sorts of work. So we're, our main uh, thing that we're starting with is helping people in light trespass disputes and light pollution disputes with municipalities or their neighbors or anything like that. And so we're going to go in there and, and check it out and see what's happening in the actual situation on the ground and decide if the neighbor or the municipality has installed responsible outdoor lighting and if it can be improved. And then we'll make those recommendations for free to all parties in a non-biased way from lighting experts. That's right, lighting experts. So if you want to donate to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, you go to restoringdarkness.com and you click the donate link. Welcome to the show, Dr. Treglone-Reed. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I, I used to see satellites as a kid when I was lying at a, in front of a fire or out and we're looking at the stars and you'd see this white dot flash across the sky. And, you, and so we said, what is that? Oh, that's a satellite going around the earth. Wow, isn't that great? And at that time, it was kind of cute. It was kind of cool to see satellites. Um, has the situation gotten out of control? At this precise moment in time, I wouldn't say out of control yet. Um, from Estimates at the moment, we've got about 5,000 additional new satellites in low Earth orbit. Um, because they're in low Earth orbit, say, compared to the satellites we used to see as children, which were in geostationary orbit, 
there were they're almost 1,900 times, yeah, they're about 400 times closer to us. So instead of being about 35,000 kilometers away, they're about 500 kilometers away. So using the inverse square law, you can just do a rough calculation, show that they're you know, thousands of times brighter just by being this much closer. With 5,000 in lower orbit at the moment, the issue isn't out of control. What potentially will be out of control is when you look at all the ITU in filings, which is the international regulator, which companies and governments have to put filings in to launch their satellites. We've got over half a million planned by the end of the century, by the end of the decade. So that's Oof. a hundredfold increase on now. <laughs> wow. So, okay. So, and just quickly to understand this, it's not like the satellites themselves are producing a light. It's that the light from the sun, because they're so high, is reflecting off these satellites like the moon, for example. The moon doesn't yes. produce its own light. So it's, what we're no. seeing in moonlight is really sunlight reflected off the moon. And so what we're seeing from exactly. these satellites is sunlight reflected off them. Basically, yes. Uh, I mean, there's two types of reflections. You've got specular and diffuse. Specular reflection is basically when the light re um, reflects off the solar panels, and it's a direct reflection. So basically, it's a very bright reflection, but a very small angle. It's got to be at the correct angle from the angle of incidence from the solar light. That's where you get the iridium flares and that from the past. And sometimes you get glinting when the satellite just slightly moves or passes through a certain attitude or orientation. And you just want to get this bright light for a few seconds. That in its own is an issue, but it happens not very often. What's the main issue for these new satellites is we get diffuse reflection. And that's where basically due to the different surface materials and angles of the material of you know, the satellite design, the light's reflected in all directions. Okay, at a lower flux level, at a lower intensity, but it's reflected in all directions. Hence, you're able to see the satellites potentially from horizon to horizon as they pass over the night sky. And this is interfering with people's joy of looking at the sky now. It's also interfering with astronomical, astronomical research and um, this sort of stuff. How does it impact the other, um, uh, the, the work that, you know, astronomers are doing? Well, that's one of the things we've been looking into is to determine what aspects of astronomy are mostly impacted and is there any mitigations that we as astronomers can do um, what we found is the most uh, the telescopes that are going to be mostly affected are the ones with um, very large field of views and very long exposure times so for example the new vera rubin observatory that's been built here in chile on the nsf and nori lab it's an eight meter telescope and it's supposed to be doing a 10-year legacy survey to look for things that we don't know exist and that is the telescope that's going to be mostly affected. And due to the highly, uh, sorry, yeah, okay, sorry, due to the um, very sensitive camera and detector, what we determined is, is well, the team at um, Vera Rubin, led by Tony Tyson, um, is if you've got a satellite with a stationary magnitude of seven or brighter, it will oversaturate the pixel detectors, which will not just ruin the image where the satellite crosses over, but it will affect all the pixels in the image. You get electronic ghosting, crosstalk, and basically the original estimate was it was going to ruin around about 30% of the images, which would add an additional three years onto the 10-year survey. And because this, yeah, is, carry on, finish up. Sorry, I was going to ask you another question, but go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, this because is the work of, of the IAU, correct? Uh, 
the work that I'm doing is part of the IAU's uh, yes. Centre of the Protection yeah. of the Dark and Quiet Skies. Yes. Um, I, back in September 2021, with the impact of all this going on, I founded the Chilean Low Earth Orbit Satellite Group here in Chile. Uh, because Chile's one of these in this unique situation where the idea of these satellites bringing in high speed, low latency broadband to every part of the world is great for Chile. We have lots of rural communities, underdeveloped areas. We've got the indigenous people. This could be a great boom for education and business mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. However, Chile is also disproportionately affected by this with the highest concentration of the world of international telescopes. By the end of the mm -hmm. decade, half of all the world's big telescopes will be here in Chile. Mm. And that's because we, the Atacama Desert has the best night skies in the world. We've got low humidity, um, high altitude. It's yeah, the best skies. <laughs> and that's why I'm very privileged to be working and living here in Chile at the moment. So, you know. So the again, you know, like the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, we're not against lighting. You know, we're we're pro lighting. We're lighting people. It doesn't sound to me like you have anything against have, having the satellites and the connectivity and all the wonderful things that come uh, with um, enhanced communication services for people using the internet. What you're saying is we have to do something about this, or we're going to have a, a problem down the road that's going to be very difficult to fix. Exactly. Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this technological advancement is beneficial to humanity. And I can see the pros and cons. I know that there's some astronomers are against it, and I know some, some astronomers are completely for it. I, I'm in that middle zone where it's, I suppose, the best way to put it is I believe in progress, but not at any cost. I mean, I suppose the best way to describe it is a similar situation that happened in the UK. We have great listed buildings with historical importance, but they're not green. They're not very energy efficient. So do you knock the building down to build green housing or do you keep it? And so you keep it, trying to make it as green and um, energy efficient as possible, but you keep the original design to keep the cultural heritage and so on and so forth. So it's the same with these satellites. Yes, we want them, but we need to work together with the operators to minimize the impact. Can the problem be fixed after a satellite is launched or is it something that has to be fixed before it's launched? This needs to be fixed before they're launched because once you launch the satellite, it's up there. The benefit though from them being in low Earth orbit is that they're constantly having atmospheric drag. So with the limited fuel supply that the satellite has, they have an expected lifetime of five years. So the original satellites that Starlink launched back in 2019 they'll all be gone by into 2024, 2025. So with that in mind, if it is launched and we have an issue with it, it's only a temporary issue for five years. So it's like with Starlink and SpaceX, they keep doing these new mitigation designs to try and reduce the reflective brightness of the satellites. You had DarkSat, then VisorSat, and now we've got the, the V2 minis, we've got um, Brad um, dielectric mirrors, which are designed to change the diffuse reflections into specular reflections so they can point the bright reflections away from major observatories. The So the industry is cooperating with you on this issue? SpaceX and Starlink, yes. OneWeb's been cooperating with us and Amazon Corpia has also been helping working with us and this has all been done through the IAU CPS. Um, AST Space Mobile wasn't working with us, but since the launch of this Blue Walker 3 satellite and our initial observations, They've been talking with NASA engineers and members of the IUCPS to try and work a way to try and reduce the brightness of their Bluebird constellation, which they hope to launch in a year or two.
The um, is there a, a compromise in the offering? Is there? Do you feel like you have the momentum now where there's going to be continuous improvement in this world, um, or is there a limit to what these satellites will always produce some kind of reflective light? Yeah, the uh, brightness limit limit um, factor that we um, came to is about magnitude seven. Um, so that's basically a hundred times brighter than a magnitude two. Um, for your listeners, basically Jupiter's roughly magnitude minus 2.4 and uh, Venus is minus 4.7 or something like that. Um, so basically, Venus is 100 times brighter than Blue Walker 3 when Blue Walker 3 is at its brightest. But the issue is, and there's been quite a bit of research done into this and there's still research continuing on, is that even if we have the satellites at magnitude 7 or fainter, so they're no longer visible to the human eye, they're still going to add to the sky background glow. Um, and this is going to be a compounding effect as you get hundreds of thousands, of, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these satellites. It will basically drown out the faintest objects in the night sky, things that, you know, distant galaxies and quasars. So we do need to have some sort of regulations in place to limit the total number of these constellations. Hmm. And so you, you mentioned that they have a five-year life in low Earth orbit, or in and around that. Um, what happens to them? Do they crash down to Earth? Do they bring them back down? How does that work? Um, for, for what we understand from looking at the filings, uh, the, the idea is that they get deorbited and they're, you know, controlled burn up in the atmosphere. So that's generally the idea. Um, obviously, you have random failings when satellites have lost control. So the more satellites you have, the more that's going to happen. And this adds two potential issues. First, there's the Kessler syndrome, which is a theory where basically if you have an, uh, an orbital impact, you'll have too much debris in low Earth orbit, which will make it impossible to launch any more rockets because it's going to, and no matter how you launch or where you launch from the Earth, it's going to get hit by small debris. So that could potentially stop all manned missions. It could stop probes, satellites, so on and so forth. Um, and also, another work that's been going on, and it's been mentioned in the news recently, um, they've looked at potentially what happens to these satellites when you burn them up in the atmosphere. You're then dumping a large amount of, say, aluminium into the, into the stratosphere. Now, it was decided back in the 60s and 70s that aluminium in the high atmosphere could work to counter global um, climate change in that it scatters sunlight back into space, helping to reduce global temperatures. However, they decided to not go with any more experiments in that area because they determined that a slight miscalculation on the amount of aluminium in the stratosphere could have devastating consequences. Basically, you could shunt the Earth into an ice age. So, you know, it's an idea back in the 60s and 70s, and they dropped it. The problem is we're now potentially going through an accidental bioforming experiment by having these large amounts of uh, metals deposited into the high atmosphere. And this is what, what's happening is the, the, the satellite becomes decommissioned. They tell it to begin to swirl around the Earth in an area where the friction on the satellite will cause it to pull itself apart and burn up certain components. But... What happens is there's a debris field that's left by each satellite, and this is solid metal debris that's then orbiting around the Earth, and that will potentially smash into rockets, um, other satellites, um, and this. And so we may actually be limiting 
our our way of getting the heck off this planet if we needed to down the road because we're going to be surrounded by a whole bunch of bullets traveling at 14,000 kilometers an hour or something like that. Exactly, yes. I mean, at the moment, it's not much It's not much of an issue, but then um, I that um, there's been quite a few near misses and they've had to do some uh, last-minute maneuvers to, to prevent impacts. So at the moment, it's all okay. But as, as I said, we've got about 5,000 Starlinks and OneWebs in low Earth orbit. If, say, by the end of 2030, we've got 500,000 of these satellites, the chances of this happening or a collision taking place is going to go, is, you know, exponentially increase. And so, and if something like that was to happen, then yes, we'd end up basically entrapping ourselves onto the surface of the Earth for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so when these things are burning up, do we do they know what um, the pieces, the sizes of the chunks of these satellite sizes that are left up there? Um, well, basically, the, when they're burning up in the atmosphere, they actually all burn up. So basically, you end up having particulates, which then mixes with the atmosphere in the ah. atmospheric current. So you don't actually have to breathe from them burning up itself. Ah. It's what the whatever's what left about. over from the materials That's the, as they decompose yes. up there. Yes. Ah. Yes, but what, what we're with Kessler syndrome, what we're concerned about is basically if two satellites collide hmm. and then that's in orbit and then you get the dust cloud of debris. I remember, I don't know if it was 10 years ago or whatever, where China ran a test where they blew up a defunct satellite using a missile from Earth. And the problem wasn't, you know, they were attacking their technology or whatever it is, their, their military technology. Maybe it was a provocative act to show the world that they're powerful too or something like this. But the real concern was with all the debris that was left after they exploded this device. And so that's what you're talking about. If these things start to collide with one another, we're going to have these wild debris fields where the stuff separates into all sorts of different areas and is still orbiting the Earth. Um, yes, and because some of these pieces are very small, they can't be trapped by radar. So basically, mm. you could have two satellites collide, some debris flies off, which hits other satellites, and so basically you end up having a, a, a yeah a runaway effect where satellites keep getting disintegrated and disintegrated. Oof. You know, I could totally see that happening. I mean, I don't mean to be a Debbie yeah. Downer, but, you know, it just we have these situations where... Um, we have one good benefit. So, for example, in the lighting industry, LEDs come along. Hey, well, now we, you know, we can save a whole bunch of energy, use less electricity. And then the, what happens is that the blinders go on and we end up squarely in Jevon's paradox where, you know, the cheaper something gets, the more of it you use. And what you see is that light trespass and light pollution is absolutely going crazy right now. There, you know, people, LEDs are just so much brighter and less wattage that people can put so many of them up in different areas and it's causing problems and it's these unintended consequences, you know, and I see that, I see this as a very intractable problem. Like if this, if this happens, this is, we can't fix this. There's no human way to fix that. No, not at the moment. I mean, I do know there are some companies um, doing uh, experiments with satellites to collect defunct satellites, um, try and you know collect them and tow them away or so on and so forth. But if you end up having a Kessler syndrome situation where basically that's it, you, you're not going to be able to launch. So you're not going to be able to put these satellites to collect them, yes. the debris up there. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's like at least the plastics are in the ocean. You know, we can go and get them. You know what I mean? Like there's yes. a, 
you know, with this, it's going to be like you're going to have this, this if, if it goes wrong, you're going to have a field of debris that is going to prevent you from going up there to fix the problem in the first place. Exactly, yes. Oh. So, yes. Yeah, I mean... I don't want to I, sound like a doomsday... Yeah, I don't want to sound like a doomsdayer, but, you know, that is a potential option. And so, you know, I mean, I know the FCC and the ITU and some of these companies are seriously concerned and about this, especially the operators, because at the end of the day, they don't want this to happen because that means that messes up their business plan. Mm. So I do know quite a few companies are working on this. Um, at the end of the day, uh, technology is on our side with this. I mean, for example, Starlink, they're using lasers for inter-satellite communications. So they can pinpoint the position of the satellite very clearly. And that way they can then do um, last minute orbital maneuvers to avoid any potential impacts. But as more and more companies launch, and you know, not just American companies, but we know that the Chinese are planning to launch a constellation of 13,000 satellites. There could be countries in Asia, Africa, South America, you know, take your pick. It's going to become and accessible not... to more and more nation states, not just the United States and the exactly. European Union. Yeah. Exactly, hmm. yes. And some of these companies from these other countries might not have as advanced technology as, say, what is being utilized in Starlink. So, you know, we have to rely on them to do their jobs as well. It's, it's interesting because um, you take a look from the lighting industry perspective, like nobody intends to create light pollution. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like anybody wants to do that or, you know, it, it is regrettable when it happens. Can it be fixed? Yes, this kind of stuff. But I don't think it's enough to rely on something like, well, the companies don't want it to happen either because that wrecks their business model. I think a lot of them will still take the risk if they're allowed to. Who's in charge here? The, uh, the, this IAUCPS, this is like a, um, a, a group of astronomers who are trying to have an impact on policy at the government. Who's in charge of it? NASA in charge of this from the American perspective? Who's in charge of it from the European perspective and who can lay down the law? Yeah, um, so basically the IUCPS is basically a group of astronomers all working on this situation. Um, it's made up of four hubs. You've got the um, SAT hub, which is basically part of the group that I'm with, where we're doing the observations, we're collecting, de developing mitigation strategies and so on and so forth. You then have the public engagement hub, which is basically to talk to the various members of the public, explain the importance of astronomy and you know the impact these satellites have. And you then have two very important hubs you've got the policy hub which is basically working with the with un cospus and on international treaties and space law and you then also have the industry hub and that's basically the hub that's working with the different satellite operators to try and you know allow them to share their um yeah, their technology that's got ndas on them with a small select group of astronomers and so on and so forth the issue is is all these rules are basically governed by the International Space Treaty, which is done through the UN. Um, Chile last year, the year before, made a push with the um, COSPUS meeting in um, Austria uh, last year to try and get a committee set up within the UN to examine this and try and you know, work ways of different countries. The issue is that all the countries said yes, apart from one country, I won't name it, but this one country said no, and as a consequence, nothing happened. Because with the UN, you need to have everyone say yes before anything happens, which is a bit of a pain in the backside and slows things down. I understand the reason why, but it's more international politics. But 
it took 20 years for the International Space Treaty to be ratified. So regulations are slow, especially on the international level. Yes, for example, Chile can do its own regulations when it comes to light pollution. I mean, we just passed a new law that actually now limits uh, what sort of lights you can have in certain distances from the major observatories. So within you within a few hundred kilometers of one of the main observatories, you can only use um, orange lighting. You can't mm. use the blue LEDs. Um, and they bought out, uh, but they've also made it a bit fairer in that private residents, they only have to change their lights to the new color, to the new lighting code when their lights fail and they need to replace the bulb. Businesses have to do it within the next 12 months and mining companies in particular, because quite a lot of the light pollution that's been here in the Atacamas from the main cities and all the big mining companies. Mm. Uh, but that's what it can do in its own borders. It can't really do anything above, you know, out, out in orbit. That has to come, just like the ocean, it comes under international law. And so as a consequence, you need all countries in agreement. Mm. So the FCC and the Americans and the Europeans could say, yes, we like this regulation in place to protect the night sky or the kisses. But you could then have, say, you know, China, Russia, uh, another country, Durant say, but we want to launch our constellation, provide high-speed internet to our people, and we don't have that money to pay for this extra technology to overcome the regulation, so we reject it, and so therefore the international rule doesn't take place. So we're having to come at this from multiple avenues, not just regulation, but also from working with the operators and trying to find the way forward that's benefit to everyone. You know, it's interesting because when you, it seems like these problems um, of, you know, uh, nation state priorities, okay? So this country wants to have their communication network. This other country wants to have their communication network. And when sort of as this starts to grow and grow and grow, you see the problems expand faster than the knowledge and the regulations can expand. Do we need to slow down here a little bit? Is there any way to do that? What's your gut instinct? Is it going to go wrong? Is it going to go right? Well, this is the thing. I mean, this is why we created the IUCPS to let these people all over the world know we're here, we're willing to work with them, we're willing to try and, you know, find ways um, to solve this before it becomes a problem. Um, at the end of the day, we can't force anyone to work with us. There's no international regulations. So, but then you have companies like SpaceX, Starlink, who've actually turned around and said their mitigation designs that they're developing, they're making them open and free to other companies. Mm. They're actually willing to give the technology and the designs to the other companies so the other companies can incorporate them for free, um, which is actually really brilliant from them. So I know there's been a lot of bashing about Starlink and SpaceX and their satellites. And yes, perhaps some of it's deserved, but they also are actually responding. They are spending money on trying to develop mitigation designs and they're making this freely available to other companies. So we're just at the moment, we're stuck on having to, you know, work with the companies and rely on their, you know, their openness and their want to um, do this. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, for SpaceX, for example, they're all rocket engineers and engineers and satellite designers. They grew up loving the dark, the night sky themselves. So sure. we're relying on their, their wants and their ability to not make things worse. So, you know, which is not really the best way to go about it. Cause as I said, you've got other countries, things get messy. So, 
But one of the things that we are also wanting to um, do is let the public know about this, this sort of thing. Mm. Because one of the things that we are thinking of is um, similar to what happens in the UK. I don't know about America, but basically if you're, you know, you're looking for an energy provider, you can look at different companies. They give you the different quotes. But some companies say, we are a green energy provider. All our electricity comes from wind farms. So quite a few people then select that company for green credentials. So if we had, say, the different operating companies providing, say, not green credentials, but dark sky credentials, saying we've made all our satellites fainter than this, we're doing this work to make it easier for radio telescopes, then consumers might turn around and say, okay, they're being, they're being more, um, uh, what's the word? They're, you know, dealing with the situation better, so I'll select them as my, you know, as my internet provider. Mm. The product labeling thing is is also fraught though right so when when you start to like when when people are able i i actually do a lot of podcasts and i speak to different organizations just talking to one yesterday about the this idea of product labeling right like how do you and the the product labeling industry just keeps expanding so quickly into every different area that it's almost in, it's almost impossible for any particular product label to get um, accepted by the public because the time it takes you know to for and then for people to make this connection like oh I'm going to choose this company over that it's it needs to be part of the mix but it can't be the only solution to the problem I think we need to have the the actual industry needs to really buy into your work that's what I think has to happen. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I mean, as, as as I said, I mean, this is just one of the many things we're looking at, uh, getting the consumers on side, but also, you know, getting the industry, the operators on side. I mean, as mm. I said, I mean, um, Amazon Cupria, for example, uh, they've developed uh, two prototype satellites, one with a mitigation design, one without. And we're aiming to collect data, you know, of the two satellites to determine the efficiency or the effectiveness of the mitigation designs. And we're then sharing that information with Amazon. So that way they can then go back to the, go to the engineers and say, this worked, this didn't work. And so basically at the moment, we're, we're wanting to build good rapports with these operators and basically work with them, you know, on a voluntary basis. And another option again is, you know, trying going through the policy route and international regulations. So, you know, we're, we're trying everything from every angle <laughs> in the hope that all of it helps. I mean, it's a bit like during the pandemic, you know, vaccinations mm. do a certain amount. Masks only do a certain amount. Social distancing only does a certain amount. But if you do all three, you have a stronger defense than just only doing one of them. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I think we've covered everything from my perspective on this issue. It looks like you have a lot of work ahead of you, Doctor. And um, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts for the Restoring Darkness listeners. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically, I mean, the issue with ground, ground-based light pollution is, from a, a professional astronomer's point of view, has not been much of an issue in that we specifically pick remote locations to build our telescopes, where there's no cities, there's no towns, and it's fine. The issue is now with these satellites is they're affect every point on earth. So that's from remote locations and cities. It affects us all. So we're actually trying to work together um, to try and solve this, this, well not solve the issue, but at least make it a little bit better. 
and the initiatives that have been done with the ground uh, light pollution, for example, the dark sky, um, what's going on here in Chile, is a step in the right direction. So I do believe that we can eventually share the night sky together because at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's not just astronomy that's potentially affected, but you also got the cultural and spiritual significance to certain people around the world. You also then got the potential ecological impact with nocturnal birds and insects that use the stars for navigation. Could they potentially see fainter satellites? Can that mess up their migratory patterns? We have no idea. Mm. So, you know, we're taking a very big leap into the dark here. And, you know, hopefully by working all together, we can share the night sky without all the unintended impacts. The, uh, you know, it's interesting. That's where I'm, I'm always with the product labeling in the lighting industry. What, what we saw was that um, everything became about lumens per watt. How much yep. light can you produce per watt became the only thing that mattered for about 10 years. And the lighting industry is recovering. I don't, I don't even know if we recover, we've started to recover yet, but you know, the, there's a, we have to find a way to um, slow down and look at multiple impacts or from multiple directions and look at the, the types of things we do as humans from a host of different perspectives. And it's very difficult because there's this pressure from these companies. They have a contract, they have the money, they're going to launch, let's go. And everybody wants the internet. And so we move forward with these things. And then regrettably, there's consequences to that that we didn't think of at the beginning. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. It's always the same. <laughs> if you think of any technology like social media and now the in, yes. you know, potential impacts to children, and um, say the automobile and climate change. Sure. It's always been the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cycle I wish we could break, but, you know, but I think at the end of the day, we, we're, we're a limited species. You know, we, we, we are not, you know, we don't have this, um, you know, we have 80 years on the planet if we're lucky. And, um, you know, we, we want to live a certain way. And so we, we have to, you know, make these different compromises. Hopefully you guys are successful. If you guys want to check out the work, it's cps.iau.org. That's the website for the work that uh, Dr. Treglone Reed is, is working on with other astronomers around the world. And why don't you check out of Luma.com if you're a lighting person. Go to evluma.com. Click the Dark Sky link there on the website. And, of course, the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. That's right. We're going to be in the field. We're going to create a training program so we can have an army of people that are not anti-lighting. We're not against lighting. We want to sell light fixtures. That's what we do. But we're going to know how to measure light trespass. We're going to know how to tell people how to eliminate that or reduce that or mitigate that substantially. And so we're working towards that training program and helping folks in the field. So if you'd like to support us, why not become a monthly donor? We'd love it. Go to uh, restoringdarkness.com. Click the donate link. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.